0: Remember when I said I was done with Mark last week? (laughs) I meant it. (laughs) Yep, we're done with the Gospel of Mark. And because it was a very natural break from finishing a book last week to what happens to be Mother's Day, this is the first time in 26 years That I have preached a Mother's Day sermon. However, I give the caveat that when we're done with this, you may be wondering, so where's the Mother's Day sermon? I understand that. I just have this aversion to preaching on things that like everybody under the sun seems to preach on year after year at all the predictable times, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Easter. No, I'm kidding about Christmas and Easter, but... You know, and you go to the scriptures, and there's basically about two passages that really, you know, are usually pulled out, and it's what preachers preach on for Mother's Day. It's all about Lois and, you know, Eunice and all that good stuff, and blah, blah, And that's fine. That's fine. But I thought, okay, Lord, you know what? I'd really like to do this, but give me something. And so I spent uh, several days, actually, considering it, meditating on it. You know, in my daily readings, I'm kind of looking for hints from the Lord of where to go and what to do, and there's just nothing coming. So now we're in the office, and Tuesday's gone by, and I'm like, okay, I really need something here, Lord, getting down here in a week. And so I said, all right, who, you know, as many times as as I've read through the Bible, it's like who just, without even thinking about it, jumps out at you as being a mother who would be, okay, this is a totally made-up word now, emulatable emulates a real word emulatable not a word but worth emulating and I mean right there was good old Naomi from the book of Ruth way back in the Old Testament after the book of Judges today I think most of us are pretty in tune even when you don't want to be um, and I say that having made strides over the years of be- getting away from my news addictions, uh, current events addictions, uh, because it was eating my insides <laughs> out. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to be that ostrich that keeps his head in the sand, although that doesn't work out real well either. But anybody who's you know, from planet Earth these days realizes that the news is fairly predictable And not just in our country, but even globally. And if I go back 30 years in my life, it's like, you know what? Solomon was right. There really is nothing new under the sun. Whatever is, will be, whatever will be, has been, and all of that, such for the counsel of Solomon. Well, today we understand that the fair of the day is murder, mayhem, immigration, open borders, the coexist crowd, and all of it culminating from cultural breakdown. But you know what I was just talking about? I was talking about 3,000 years ago. See? Nothing new under the sun. Because Israel was embarking on their journey across the Jordan to finally take possession of what was called the land of promise that was promised to them ages before, and yet they're moving into the land was not exactly according to the precise and specific and meticulous instruction that God had given them. And so God's people left, when they entered the land of promise, against God's counsel, they left cultural strongholds in place, meaning the inhabitants of the land. Very not politically correct passage. And there's many more like them in the Bible. But they went against God's command to actually push the people out of the land, lest they corrupt you, and that is precisely always what happened with God's people. And so they moved into the promised land, and they permitted the diversity crowd to have their way, allowing everybody to remain and to cohabit with them instead of utterly driving them out. So the period of Judges, which is where there were several apexes of these happening, these kinds of instances, because they just repeat themselves throughout the history of God's people. But the period of Judges, which is early on again in the Old Testament, was a very dark time for God's people. And the book of Judges, in fact, contains it twice in the book, but the very last verse in the book of Judges, which comes right before the book of Ruth, see we're getting to that, the very last verse says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that has been echoing through the ages ever since. And yet, for the truth of all of that cross-culturally and transcendent irrespective of time, through all the stormy clouds that linger over the would-be nation of Israel... There is this strand of bright glory that is piercing the darkness from two very unexpected sources at this time period of the Judges. And those two unexpected sources are two women named Naomi and Ruth. So, by way of background, before we get to the Mother's Day part of this, we need to look at some of the setup. Chapter 1, verse 1 the book of Ruth. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn, take that word sojourn, underscore it, and just keep it on the shelf right in the forefront of your mind because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. They went to sojourn in the land of Moab and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. If we don't read this carefully, we might just miss the point by sympathizing with the one labeled a certain man by the name of Elimelech, who fled because of the famine. So, okay, sure, there was a famine. I get that. But there was a famine in the land, and when I say the land, I'm capitalizing both the the and the L in land, because this wasn't just any old land, this was God's hallowed promised land, prepared by God, deeded to Israel by God himself. So sure, there was famine in the land, but Israel had been through famines, and their great and mighty God, Jehovah either provided miraculously for them through all those various famines, or he made it exceedingly clear that they were, in fact, supposed to get up and traverse to go to another place, as he does in Genesis with Joseph and his family and all that takes place in going to Egypt and and the big story around that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but do not lean on your own understanding, Solomon wrote. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. It was true in Solomon's day, and it's good wisdom for every day and age. First, had not God promised to be their sustenance? Yes, he had. Secondly, had not God promised to watch over and care for his people? Certainly, he had. Third, had not God described the land as a land that was flowing with milk and honey, even calling it the land of promise? And fourth, had not God been named, we say, Adonai or Jehovah Jireh, Adonai Ure, the God who provides. And yes, he is all those things. He has been all those things, and he will always be all those things. And so now this little famine, and I don't mean to make light of it, but it comes upon them, and the certain man whose name means, my God is king, his name is actually two Hebrew words, Eli, my God, and Melech, the king, my God the king. Pretty good name to have. So Elimelech, we say Elimelech. Leaves the land of his king, moving his family out of the land of promise into the land of Chemosh and Molech, who were the two demon gods, that's small g, of the Moabite people in the land of Moab. But why? Why? Have, I mean, of all the opportunities, of all the choices that they had, why Moab? You see, the Moabites had been troubled to the Israelites every step of the way, all along the way, throughout the years, for many years. And actually, the Lord even used the Moabites to discipline his people, Israel, because of their chronic disobedience and their spiritual laziness. In the third chapter of the book of Judges, Eglon, the king of Moab, invades Canaan and oppresses Israel for 18 years until Eglon is finally killed by a newly raised up judge by the name of Ehud. Moab was only ever trouble. So as you approach the borders of Moab from the Israelites' side, there were big billboards, at least that's the way I picture them in a sense of the way God working with them, warning God's people to turn back. It's how I imagine... Las Vegas today. But alas, there was a famine in the land. And Elimelech, who originated from Bethlehem, Bet Lechem in the Hebrew, ironically, which means the house of bread, flees the land of promise to the land of spiritual and literal incest, Moab, which was named, not for the mother of all bombs, although it just about turned out that way every time Israel dealt with them, but rather for the descendants of the man named Moab. What's more, the man whose name is my God is king, leaves the very land of the king to sojourn in a land whose name was synonymous with the worst kind of blasphemy, human child sacrifice on the altar of God. Of Molech. Again, one of the Moabite, small g, idol gods. So again, yes, I understand there was famine in the land of promise, but there was also a miracle-working Jehovah Yahweh of promise in the land as well. So pause a minute to lay, take life application number one. If you are convinced, and I mean convinced not because you got a quiver in your liver... Or it just feels so right. But I mean, in the words of, uh, in a phrase that, that Martin Luther came up years ago if you are convinced by scripture and right reason, and then I would add, and godly counsel and prayer, that you are where the Lord wants you to be, do not run even in the face of hardship. But run the family did at the lead of father slash husband. Elimelech, my God, is king. Now, Ruth, the last part of verse 1 says, They entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Enter the plaintiff whale of the cello. My apologies to Libby Phillips. Verse 1 says... Remember, I had you put it on that little shelf, underscore it, that they sojourned to the land of Moab. Well, what's a sojourn? A sojourn is a brief excursion by intention and design. Oh, yeah, we're going to go sojourn down in Miami for a few days, and then we'll be back to the glorious Maine winters. It's just to go to take a brief visit, just passing through. But you see the enticement and the temptation of sojourning where you do not belong is that you just may end up remaining. Right, Dick and Lori Perry? (laughs) The reason I say that is because they listen to my message every week. So they just heard that. (laughs) Love you guys. Oh, but as we look Throughout the ages, we see the flotsam and the jetsam of shipwrecked lives of all who went to sojourn where God warned, don't go there. And that is why the word from Scripture is to flee immorality. Not to camp out with it, not to toy with it, not to see how far, you know, how close to the line you can come with your toes to that line, but to flee immorality and flee lusts of the flesh, flee that which is a snare to you before it becomes a snare to you. For what it's worth, there's no extra charge for this today. The two temptations, and this is just my opinion. The two temptations with a waiting snare at the top of the list for men is pornography, the I gotta have a fantasy syndrome, and this one may surprise you. Desperate romance is the temptation for many, many women today, what I call the I gotta have a man syndrome. For Christian men and women, who by the way are not exempt from those first two at all, it might be what I would call the snare of relationship despite God's wisdom and mandate concerning do not be unequally yoked. Which means do not begin a courting dating, romantic relationship if you are a believer with someone who is an unbeliever and somehow naively thinking that, well, if, if, if it doesn't work out that they don't get saved in the process, I won't marry them. Hogwash from many, 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 did I say many? Many years of experience. You get your hand caught in that cookie jar. And it's the rare individual that will be able to pull it out. That was Just a bonus, life application number two. If you are going to run away from the Lord in the face of hardship, do not remain gone long. It may be fatal. Look at the juxtapositioning now, again, as an illustration of life application number two. Look at the positioning of verses 2 and 3 in proximity to what they say to each other. Again, I've already read one. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin, which, by the way, means puny. <laughs> it does. What the heck were you thinking, Dad? Uh, this is my son, Puny. Hi. My name's Peony. And the other one is Killian which means pining. Pining is like, oh, yeah, I didn't feel good about that. Why These are my two boys, <laughs> piney and puny. <laughs> what the world? Sorry, I got a little caught up in that. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, and now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband died. And she was left with her two sons. God is trying to warn His people. This is called discipline. Discipline is meant to hurt because it is meant to help. And Hebrews 12, many, many, many years later in the New Testament assures us that those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines The first warning to Elimelech is do not seek the prosperity of the nations. That's in Deuteronomy 23. It's a broad mandate to God's people. The second warning is Elimelech dies. The provider, the leader, the protector, the sustainer of the household is removed. The third warning is that the two remaining men of the household, puny and pining, die. Tough love for someone who left the land of promise to search for greener pastures. Life application number three, the greener pasture we often seek more often than not turns out to be a cemetery. So God goes through great lengths to get our attention when we don't get the message the first time around or the second time around or sometimes the 10th time around or the 15th. The trail that Elimelech defined leading his family out of God's land into a forsaken land was the trail that his sons followed, and it was fatal for them. Now, you're like, this is Mother's Day sermon, why? That was all set up. You had to get the setup of the time in order to appreciate now what follows. So, Mama Naomi. She's alone. She is a widow with two foreign daughters in law in tow who are both forbidden to really be even in the congregation of Israel, if you will. They are from the forbidden land of Moab. And their people, as I already said, were devoted to false gods. So this is not a comfortable place to be for Naomi, and it hasn't been. Well, Naomi gets word in verse 6 that the Lord has visited his people, meaning in the land of promise, giving them food. So verse 7 says, Naomi departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now let's consider the very heart and the character of Mama Naomi. Because what transpires now is not simply historically remarkable, though it is. It is not merely theologically prophetic, although it is, but it is a beautiful living picture proclaiming the gospel of grace way back in the Old Testament, demonstrating 1,000 years before the birth of the Messiah when John writes in chapter 3 of his gospel that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Naomi is in the desperate life situation. She's bereft of her husband. She's bereft of her two sons. She's in a foreign land with no visible means of support. She has emotional supports for sure, by her daughters-in-law. But her daughters-in-law are from away. Well, actually, not really. Her daughters-in-law are from Moab. That's where they're at. Actually, Naomi is the one who's from away. But Naomi is heading back to the land of promise, for more familiar grounds, more familiar customs, where the language would be completely familiar instead of just sometimes familiar, where the relatives are there and the faith that she knows is rehearsed. So ladies, let me ask you a question. Let me give you a bit of a crass illustration to help you decide what would you do? So let's say, make it a little more contemporary, you move to Quebec with your husband and your two boys, say ten years ago. Your boys married, and then your husband and your two boys both die. You have no real friends, possibly not even acquaintances, up in French speaking Quebec, because you don't speak French. You're emotionally spent from the past ten years of trials just existing. And that's with the help of three men around you. And now you are strapped with it, all on top of which is the pain and sorrow of your losses. So you decide to finally make a pilgrimage back home to Hartford from whence you came, which, remember, would not be by automobile. Let me ask you the question. Is your first thought, is your first intention, is your visceral reaction first and foremost concern, even to your own detriment, for the two women who technically now aren't even related to you, not even by marriage, nor by heritage, nor by religion. Is your first thought really, gosh, my daughters-in-law aren't from Hartford. They're of an entirely different background of, of traditions, of land, of meaning, and of religion, and custom, and people. They won't be any more comfortable back in my home of Hartford than I've been up here in Quebec. So for their sakes, I'm going to cut them loose. And tell them to go home, and I'm going to go back, going it alone, to Hartford. Even in this, there's yet more loss. Because basically there's essentially the, very close to what feels like two more deaths as everything is stripped away from Naomi who remembers where she is in the first place because of her husband who fled the land of Yahweh for the land of Molech. But Naomi now speaks. May the Lord deal kindly, speaks to her daughters-in-law, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband, referring to what the future could hold for them. She bids them to go back home, giving them a very Jewish blessing. And then Naomi kissed them, and the two daughters-in-law lifted up their voices, and they wept. Now, comedians today make a good living making us laugh with jokes about mothers And mothers-in-law, don't they? And the reason that they make us laugh is that there's often a ring of truth, even if it's a bit exaggerated (laughs) or not. But Naomi's daughters-in-law aren't thinking, finally, we can get rid of this ball and chain. Let's get out of here. No, that's not in their minds at all. In fact, they are wailing with grief that Mama Naomi would tell them to go back home. And as Ruth and Oprah, I did it, it's Orpah. Ruth and Orpah, it is not Oprah. I warned the first first service this morning that I may do that, because I do it constantly, and I've been doing it for years whenever I read this book. Now, just as a little side note, though, somebody came up to me after the first service. And they said, this is not a Snopes thing. This is absolutely confirmed. She heard it from Oprah herself. Okay? She was supposed to have been named Orpah. But the hospital staff misspelled it, and she stayed with it. So I feel like I'm okay. (laughs) All right, I knew you wanted to know that. So whether it's Orpah or Oprah, I feel like either way I'm right. Anyway. Ruth and Orpah protest Naomi, gives her heartfelt, totally unselfish explanation for her reasons in telling them to leave. And all of the reasons that Naomi gives them to leave are for the good of her daughter's in-law, even to Naomi's own hurt. Well, her daughters-in-law protest, saying to her, No! But we will surely return with you to your people. I don't know if you can appreciate the the, the unusual, awesome, non-typical response, especially in this day and in these cultures, to be willing to do that. But Naomi's not having any of it. And she gets downright, downright logical with them. Being completely honest, honest now. Painting for them what their future would in fact look like with Mama Naomi. Verse 8. Naomi said, No, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return now, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. And even though, even though I wasn't, if I said I have hope, if it, if it should be that I had a husband tonight and also bore sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore not be married waiting around for these little children to grow up so that you could marry them for your husbands? No, my daughters. Don't you understand? This is harder for me than for you. She adds, "...for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me." And by me, she means Elimelech. In the last verse, Naomi intimates that perhaps all they have experienced is not just so much circumstances of life or bad luck, but in fact is the loving discipline of Jehovah to bring Naomi back home. To the land of Jehovah. What a stellar woman Naomi is. What a phenomenal mother in law she is. And again, the text tells us, verse 14, and they being Oprah, or either way, and Ruth. No, it's just uh, getting a brain cramp there. <laughs> and they being Oprah... Orp- <laughs> the two daughters-in-law lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. The Hebrew word order here in the original, in this phrase deliberately contrast the difference in Orpah's response versus Ruth's response. Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye, but Ruth in the Hebrew debacked her. And debauch we first see used in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 24 when God is giving the marriage mandate To men and women. And he says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall debak, shall cleave or cling unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Ruth was making Naomi one with her, that I will not part from you. Now, I also want to add somewhat parenthetically on my part that that is not to say that we are to think ill of Orpah. As a matter of fact, Orpah was honoring her mother-in-law by obeying her wishes. And it was an emotional parting for her, as we have heard. But Ruth could not comply with Naomi's demand to leave. Naomi does not surrender easily, which means she absolutely meant it when she told the girls to go back to their homes. She wasn't playing some kind of a game. She wasn't playing the, you know, I'll say what uh, what will sound good for me to say, but then hope against hope that they don't take me up on it. If she was just saying the right things but not meaning it, she had numerous opportunities, as we've read, to easily accept their refusal to leave. Oh, you don't want to go home? Good. Okay, let's go. But Ruth said in verse 16, But Ruth, who clung to her mother-in-law, said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And the next phrase sounds like a Hebrew oath. And thus, which I say that because, understand, we have a Gentile, we have a Moabitess, who is reciting a Jewish oath. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, mother-in-law, but death parts you and me. Now, admittedly, I am speculating here. Orpah was very obviously and most certainly emotionally connected to Mama Naomi. Her mother-in-law had become her mother for all intents and purposes. Remembering that Orpah was from Moab and that her mother, it is assumed, is still around since Naomi told them both to go back to their mother's homes, yet Orpah truly had to be forced to meet Naomi's demands, knowing Naomi was speaking the truth about the reality of what her future would be like with her Jewish mama Naomi. She does end up leaving. And you see, emotional connection and emotional bonding is deep for sure. But the moving of the Spirit of God who gives one a desire for a hunger and a thirst for the Lord Himself is no match for even the closest earthly relationships. When our children were of that age and time came for them to depart out of the nest, so to speak, they all went, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Maybe that's a commentary on your father. No, that's another sermon. And while on the one hand, it was not what Barb and I certainly would have chosen, but we were absolutely convinced that they were in the center of God's will. And that connection, that bond, if you will, with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ surpasses any and all bonds and should and needs to. And they remain that way today. Although now one is actually within 150 miles of us. We view that as practically our backyard compared to Minnesota and Nicaragua. Well... Ruth, right here without knowing it of course, because it wouldn't be uttered yet for another thousand years, is a living picture herself of God's open arms to again what John wrote in chapter 316, of God's open arms to whosoever will come. Well in the fullness of time, the Messiah did come. And in Luke 14:26, he says, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own wife, a life, he cannot be my disciple. Ruth was under the care of Naomi, lived with her, he worked with her, watched and expected to join in her rituals of Judaism, I'm sure, and then watched all of that being lived out in Naomi before her. In all of Naomi's agonies, losing quite literally everything, she's compelled to return to the land of Jehovah. And so compelling was Naomi's faith, though, and the spirit that Ruth was being drawn by God to forsake all that was known and familiar to follow the God of the Hebrews of her mother-in-law. So as I said earlier in this vignette, it's not simply historically remarkable. It's not merely theologically prophetic. It is a beautiful living picture proclaiming the gospel of grace way back in the Old Testament. Even a thousand years before God incarnate, before Emmanuel actually came to formally make the way of salvation open to all who would come, a Gentile woman from a cursed land from a cursed race who is drawn away from the idolatrous worship of a murderous people for all intents and purposes becomes a Jew. And as the Apostle Paul writes a millennium later in Romans chapter 2, he is not a Jew who is simply one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Ruth forsaked all and became, as a Gentile, a believing, Jehovah-fearing Jew, thus inducted into God's holy family. But, taking it even a bigger step beyond the greatness of this welcome to the gospel of grace in Christ, is that this outcast Moabite woman becomes pregnant back in the land of promise by an honorable Jew named Boaz. And Ruth's womb, which had been closed through her ten years of marriage in Moab, in verse 13 we are told that Boaz, in 4.13 of Ruth, Boaz took Ruth, And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Boaz, whose function by Jewish tradition was called the kinsman redeemer, when you read the scant four chapters of the book of Ruth, it is ever so clear that Boaz is a living picture of the Messiah, the Savior himself, as well as the gospel of grace. For he takes this Gentile and makes her his wife and with the help of the Lord this Gentile this one from the cursed land of the cursed people becomes the great grandmother of King David meaning this Gentile this Moabitess is now in the direct lineage of the Savior Emmanuel God incarnate. Ruth loved the God of heaven more than she loved her own family, more than she loved her own heritage, more than she loved her own land, her own life. And yet she was a Moabitess. And all because of a good, good mother, bereft of her son's mother-in-law to their wives. She was of such a character... She had such faith and selflessness in the midst of all the tumult and the personal sorrow that she experienced that the Lord used Naomi to bring the good news of Jesus a millennium before the event of the Messiah's birth. It's a hard act to follow, moms, mothers-in-law. What are you instilling into the future generations with whom God has entrusted you? What are you living out before them? What are you modeling about what is important in life to your sons and your daughters and your daughters-in-law and your sons-in-law? Not do as I say, not do as I do, but to do as I do, showing your faith by how you live, by who you are, and by the grace that falls from your lips. That is the commission for every mom in God's scheme of things. It is a tall order for sure. But it is an order that can indeed have eternal impact and eternal consequences to the glory and praise of his name. Happy Mother's Day. Let me have you stand.